Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If you've got a Bible with you, feel free to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7 is where we'll be for the bulk of our time today. Um, First off, great to be with you guys again. If you're new, welcome. Uh, If you are new, just for you to be aware of, uh, we are currently working our way through the book of Matthew over the next few years as a church, but we're sort of doing it in sections, so one section of Matthew at a time, a few chapters here, a few chapters there, and we'll mix in some other teaching series in the meantime, but really, the better part of the next two to three years, we will be in the book of Matthew together. And this, today, is is the last week in this section of Matthew. It's also the very end of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, one of his most well-known teachings of all time. And in how he ends this sermon, Jesus probably does one thing that we would expect him to do at the end of a teaching, and one thing we wouldn't expect him to do at the end of the teaching. The thing that we would probably expect him to do is that he just briefly summarizes everything that he's been talking about so far. So we find that in verse 12. Take a look with me in Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus speaking says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So the New International Version of the Bible actually translates that as this sums up the law and the prophets, as in this is a summary of everything Jesus has been talking about so far. What he's been doing ever since chapter 5 in the Gospel of Matthew is sort of giving us his in-depth take on the things written in the law and the prophets, what you and I would call the Old Testament. But after he does all of that, after he unpacks all of that in detail, here in verse 12 of chapter 7, he just summarizes everything that he's been talking about in one sentence. He says, treat other people the way that you wish they would treat you. That's the essential message of the entire law and the prophets, of everything Jesus has been talking about in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. That's what the entire Sermon on the Mount has been about. Treat others the way that you want them to treat you. So Jesus, like many communicators, just sort of summarizes his message in order to close. That's the part we would expect him to do as a communicator. The thing we probably wouldn't expect him to do is the next part. Because unlike a lot of communicators today, Jesus doesn't then wrap his sermon up with some sort of emotional plea to his audience or a heartwarming story or a warm invitation for everyone listening. Instead, he ends this teaching with a series of warnings. It's an odd way to end a sermon, right? With a series of stark contrast between those who genuinely follow Jesus and know Jesus And those who don't. It seems like Jesus' intention at the end of the Sermon on the Mount was to, as much as possible, draw crystal clear lines around who was in and who was out when it came to the kingdom of God. 
Simply put, Jesus in this passage wants to help us determine who is a Christian and who isn't one. That's his goal at the end of the day. Now, something I've noticed the longer that I've been around evangelicalism is that we often really struggle with this idea. We struggle to to state definitively or confidently where anyone else is at in regards to their relationship with Jesus. We discourage it. We write it off with statements like, well, who am I to say where they're at with God? Or, well, that's just between them and God. I wouldn't even claim to know how to speak into that. Or, well, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, so I just don't want to make any statements about where that person is with Jesus. We tend to get really nervous and anxious about making any type of hard and fast assessment about where somebody is at with the Lord. And I think some of us even struggle to know where we ourselves are at in regards to our relationship with Jesus. I know a lot of people that wrestle with that on a regular basis. So for me, growing up in the church, I was there every time the doors were open. I was just in church constantly because my parents made me be there. And constantly we would go on these youth retreats all over the southeast. I mean, just all over the place. It was like every winter break, every summer break, we were at some type of camp or retreat with our youth group. And and at least once on each one of these retreats that we went on, at least once the main stage speaker would give an invitation for everyone there to, to either give their life to Jesus for the very first time or do what's called rededicating their life to Jesus. That was another term that was used a lot. He would make this grand invitation for people to respond. And at that point in my life, when I was going to these camps, I was pretty sure that I had already given my life to Jesus. But just to be sure, I responded to every single one of those invitations. I I think by the end of the deal, I was saved in like five different states across the southeast between the ages 10 and 18 because I just wasn't sure, right? And it just seems like that's the type of thing you want to be sure about. So I just figured frequency was the key to making sure I had a relationship with Jesus, just constantly responding to these invitations. And to be honest, whether it involves experiences like that or not, I I think a lot of people can identify with the experience of not knowing exactly where they stand in regards to relationship with Jesus. A, A lot of people have doubt, have uncertainty about it. But here's the thing, Jesus doesn't want us to be nervous or uncertain about these things. He he wants to help bring clarity one way or another to people's relationship and people's status with him. And and I think that's what he's attempting to do in this passage in Matthew chapter 7. For the rest of what we're going to read, Jesus is going to give us four marks or four indicators of a person who genuinely follows him. That's what he's getting after. And as we walk through each of these one by one, I want you to think through people that you know that claim to follow Jesus, but also I want you to look at your own life. I want you to examine your own life, your own heart, your own mindset towards Jesus, and I want you to use what Jesus says in this passage to do what it was intended to do, which is to honestly ask the question, based on what Jesus says, do I understand what it means to follow Jesus? Me personally. Do I get what following Jesus is? I want us to use what Jesus says to wrestle through that question this morning. So, first sign, first indicator, first mark of whether or not someone follows Jesus is walking a difficult path. Walking a difficult 
path. This one comes from the first two verses, verses 13 and 14. Look with me there. Enter, Jesus says, by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard or difficult that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So this language that Jesus uses about gates and paths and destinations, it would have been very familiar to his audience at the time. Many cities were surrounded by these large towering walls that protected the city from invading foreign armies. And there were only a handful of ways to get inside the walls to each city, generally through gates or openings in the walls. And different gates that you entered would lead to different paths in different parts of the city. So if you went to a gate called the Sheep Gate, it would take you on a path that eventually spit you out into the central marketplace of the city where cattle and sheep were bought and sold. That's the, the Sheep Gate led to that path which took you to that destination. If you entered through a different gate in the walls of the city, it might take you on a different path that would eventually lead you to the royal palace where the officials and kings and queens were in the city. But the idea is that the gate you chose determined the path that you took, which in turn decided your destination. Does that make sense? That's the way these things worked. So Jesus uses that imagery to talk about following Jesus. The wide gate, he says, leads to the easy way. In other words, if you live just like anybody else in the world lives, you won't encounter much resistance to how you're living at a cultural sort of level. But that path, Jesus says, will end in destruction. On the other hand, he says, the narrow gate of a relationship with Jesus leads to the difficult path of discipleship. But that path ends with life. It ends, to, it ends with becoming who God made you to be all along. But here's the kicker with all of this. Whichever one you choose, it comes as a package deal. This is, this is not a choose-your-own-adventure type of deal. Like, this is not a mix-and-match type of thing. You, you don't get to enter through the Jesus gate and then walk the easy path. That doesn't work within what Jesus says. And I bring that up because it tends to be a popular notion, at least here in the Bible Belt, that if you make some sort of one-time decision to, to become a Christian, that's more or less all you need to get into heaven. That's the popular belief out there. You can pretty much do whatever you want after you make that one-time decision because your eternal, your eternal destiny is determined by that one sort of spiritual transaction that you made with Jesus at one point. But that understanding of things doesn't seem to fit within Jesus' analogy here, does it? Because that would be like saying that you can pick the narrow gate and then take the easy path. But that's not an option within Jesus' framework. And listen, the, the problem isn't necessarily that your decision was insufficient. It's that you misunderstood the decision you were making in the first place. Because choosing the narrow gate necessarily means choosing the difficult path, or at least being open to its reality. Think about some of the things that we've discussed so far in the Sermon on the Mount over the past few months. 
how Jesus said we should approach sex and sexuality as followers of Jesus, how he said we should relate to our enemies as followers of Jesus, how he said we should relate to our money and our possessions and our anxiety, all of these things. There's not a single one of these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount that is easy to live out in our day and age. Every single one of them fly in the opposite direction of the way culture will lead you to live. So you will not put any of this into practice if your goal is always to take the path of least resistance. That's just not what following Jesus is about. Followers of Jesus enter through the narrow gate, which means they follow the difficult path. But followers of Jesus are willing to endure that path despite its difficulty. That's the thing. There's a story in the Gospel of John where Jesus says some really tough things to a group of people that think they want to follow Jesus. He says some tough things to them and and they just walk away from him as a result. They decide not to follow Jesus at all because it turns out it was going to be tougher than they thought it would be. So Jesus turns to his disciples after those people leave and he says, hey disciples, are are you guys going to leave too? Are you going to turn around too? One of the disciples looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, where would we go? Who else would we follow? He says, you, Jesus, hold the words of life. Where else would we go? That's the posture of a follower of Jesus on the difficult path. It's not that we don't struggle. It's not that we don't have doubts. But that even in those kinds of moments, our response is, where else would we go, Jesus? You are the only one worth following. You hold the words of life. Jesus is saying that if you want to spot a legitimate follower of Jesus, watch their life when the going gets tough. That's what you're looking for. That's when you'll know. They'll struggle, but they will struggle from inside the relationship with the Father. They'll cry out, but they'll cry out towards the Father. They'll doubt, but they will let their doubt push them to Jesus rather than away from Jesus. And people will ask those people, those people that have life difficult, they'll ask them, hey, why do you still follow Jesus given that it's gone only bad for you so far? And they'll respond by saying like the disciples, where else would I go? Jesus holds the words of life. He is worth following. You see, following Jesus when the way is easy is logical. You could be following him entirely for the perceived benefits from it. Following Jesus when it's difficult means that you're doing it because of who Jesus is, because he is the only way to life. So that's the first mark, first indicator of a follower of Jesus, following a difficult path. Here's the second one. Bearing observable fruit. Bearing observable fruit. This one comes from verses 15 through 20. Take a look at those verses with me. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Some of us are like, I'm not sure, actually, if they are. I didn't pay attention in agriculture class. But if we were, most of us were farmers, like Jesus' audience at the time was, we would all just inherently answer, no, that's not how that works. That's not how these plants work. Verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, 
But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? That's what that verse sounds like to me. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus specifically lays out this test, this mark, this indicator for proclaimed followers of Jesus who are, quote, prophets. So prophets were essentially spiritual leaders or people who claimed to speak on behalf of God into people's lives. So you and I probably don't use the term prophet a ton today, just in our everyday conversation. But in in today's world, prophets would likely include people like pastors, people with my job, who who shepherd people on a regular basis to learn how to follow the way of Jesus. It would also likely include other pastors and authors and podcasters that we listen to online or read in our books that, that teach us how to follow Jesus on some level. It could refer to therapists that we defer to often to tell us how to live and how to think about life. But it could also just apply to any person in our life that we view as spiritually mature. Anyone that we have given the space and the authority to consistently speak into our life from a spiritual perspective. So Jesus' goal with this part of the passage, it would seem, is to help us know as followers of Jesus which of those people we should listen to. How do we know if those people know Jesus and therefore if we should give them consistent authority into our lives from a spiritual perspective? Because here's the deal, anybody can sound like they're solid. Anybody can sound like they're worth listening to. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are. Jesus says that sometimes these false prophets will show up in sheep's clothing, meaning they'll look just like everybody else, They'll look normal. Uh, I'll let you in on a secret. Very few people that want to lead you astray preface it with, this is the part where I lead you astray. It's not usually the way that it goes. It's usually a lot more sneaky, a lot more subtle than that. So the question is, how do we tell the difference between true prophets and false ones? How can we tell when we should give someone spiritual authority into our lives and when we shouldn't give them spiritual authority? into our lives. Jesus says there's one very important way. Look at the fruit of their life. Look at the fruit of their life. He says repeatedly in verses 15 through 20, you will recognize them by their fruit. You will know them by their fruit. That's his emphasis in these verses. Now, fruit in the Bible often refers to someone's character. That's usually what it refers to. Anybody can sound smart and convincing and clever and compelling, but you can't fake character at least not for long, because character takes time. So it's really easy for us to miss the metaphor that Jesus lays out here. So when he says fruit, what do you and I think of? You and I, when we think, okay, I want some fruit, I want, I want some grapes, what we think is, okay, I'm going to drive five minutes up the road and buy some grapes at the supermarket that is sitting there on the shelves waiting on me. His audience wouldn't have heard it that way. His audience would have thought, okay, if I want some grapes, that means I need to go get some seed, I need to till the ground, uh, I need to plant the seed, I need to water it, I need to cultivate it, and eventually in two to five years, I will have grapes. They would have heard it that way. 
Growing fruit was a slow, gradual, meticulous process. It required care and attention and persistence. And more than anything, it required time. That's the imagery Jesus uses to talk about the development of character in people's lives. It just takes time. You cannot microwave character. Now, sure, you can fake a general niceness and pleasantness about you. Any of us can fake that for a certain period of time. But Jesus isn't talking about general niceness and pleasantness here. He's talking about things like faithfulness, goodness, self-control, patience. Those are things that you cannot fake for long without people close to you finding out. Anybody that has a regular view into your life is going to be able to spot if you're faking your way through those things. So Jesus says here, when it comes to who you allow unfettered access to speak into your life authoritatively, take note of their character. Notice their character. How how does that person treat their spouse? How do they interact with their kids? How do they interact with their roommates? What do the people who know that person best say about them, if they were honest? Or does anybody know that person well enough to say anything about them? That should be a red flag right off the bat if nobody knows them that well. A person's character will often reveal whether that person just likes being an authority over other people or whether they've actually implemented the things that they're saying to you into their own life. And just to be abundantly clear on all of this, I'm including myself in this test, okay? I'm including the other people that you see up on this stage telling you about Jesus and how to follow Jesus. You should not receive anything that we say up here just because we're up here. Every single thing that we say should, should be evaluated based on its consistency with the scriptures and based on our character. Are our lives consistent with the things we are telling you to base your life on? If you don't know us that well, ask somebody that does know us well. Say, hey, should I listen to them? Is their character reflective of the things that we talk about on Sundays? Jesus says, before you give anyone complete authority and influence into your life, be as sure as you can that their character can be trusted. Now, I get that we obviously can't know the character of every podcaster or online pastor that we listen to. I understand that. But that just means that we should not be looking to those people as the only source of authority into our life or even the primary source of authority into our life. It's kind of crazy to me that I have to say this, but in today's world, it needs to be said. A pastor who posts their sermons online a hundred miles away cannot be your pastor. That's not how that works. The The word pastor in the Bible means shepherd. Do you know what shepherds did in the Bible? They spent all of their time in the midst of the sheep that they were shepherding. So it's not that the things he says aren't good. It's not the things that they say aren't good. It's just that they can't be your pastor. A person who hosts a podcast where they talk about following Jesus cannot be your primary source of discipleship to Jesus. A therapist 
cannot be the only voice, voice of authority into your life. Listen, feel free to listen to those people. Feel free to sift through what's good and what's bad and implement some of it and leave some of it. Feel free to do all of those things. But for anybody you trust fully with spiritual authority into your life, look at the fruit of their life. The fruit will tell you whether or not they practice what they preach and therefore whether or not you should give them authority into your life. Does that make sense? Look at the fruit. The third one is doing the will of God. Doing the will of God. This one comes from verses 21 through 23. Take a look with me there. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here, I think Jesus offers a very important clarification to what he just said about fruit. And the clarification is that by fruit, he doesn't mean people who do spiritual things. He doesn't even mean people that do impressive spiritual things. Because here, there are a group of people that did some pretty impressive spiritual things in the name of Jesus, and, and yet they didn't know Jesus. A person can use spiritual-sounding language all the time and still not know Jesus, a person, can, a person can be the most passionate worshiper you have ever seen in your life and still not know Jesus. A person can know tons of Bible and still not know Jesus. So what does Jesus say is a sign of being known by Jesus and knowing him? It's right there in verse 21. He says, those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those who do the will of God. The sign of a genuine follower of Jesus is someone who does God's will. Now, there, there may be few ideas that for a lot of Christians feel more mysterious than the idea of God's will. I've learned that if you work for a church and you offer any type of class or seminar or teaching on God's will, people will come out in droves to hear about it. Because for a lot of us, we want to know desperately what God's will for our life is. And usually, at least a lot of us, feel a little bit lost as to how to determine that. As to how to, how to determine what God's will is for us personally. It just feels like such an ambiguous, unknowable idea to a lot of us. You know what's really interesting to me? In the Bible, the idea of God's will is rarely ambiguous. In fact, in fact, quite often, it's crystal clear. A majority of the time, knowing God's will and doing God's will is actually very straightforward in the Bible. I'll just give you a few examples to illustrate what I mean. In 1 Thessalonians, it says that the will of God is for us to abstain from sexual sin and exercise self-control. Those two things are God's will. It also says in 1 Thessalonians that the will of God is for us to be thankful in all circumstances. That's God's will. In 2 Peter, it says that the will of God is for us all to repent of our sin. In 1 Timothy 2, it says that God's will is that we should pray for other people. I could go on, but do you see how in the Bible, oftentimes God's will is way clearer than I think we give it credit for. It's way more knowable, way less ambiguous than we tend to think that it is. 
We might even say that according to Jesus' language in the Sermon on the Mount, doing the will of God is simply aligning our lives with what God says our lives should look like. You don't have to guess at it. (laughs) A lot of it is crystal clear in the Scriptures. It's simply aligning our lives with what God says our lives should look like. And Jesus says those who genuinely follow Jesus are those who do the will of God, simply put. So if you come across someone who who says and does impressive spiritual things in the name of Jesus and yet refuses to implement what the scriptures clearly teach into areas of their life, good chance that person's not a Christian. But on the other hand, if you come across somebody who leads a very normal, very run-of-the-mill life, very quiet life, But at the same time, you see them fighting to align every aspect of their life with what the scriptures teach about how life should be lived. That's a follower of Jesus because they do the will of God. Which leads us to our final test, which is this. Final mark of a genuine follower of Jesus is someone who practices the teachings of Jesus. Practice the teachings or the way of Jesus. This one comes from verses 24 through 27. Take a look with me. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, or some translations say puts them into practice, that person will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them or does not put them into practice will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I'm going to be very brief on this last one simply because we have taught on this passage probably five or six different times in our short history as a church. So feel free to go back and listen to some of those online. But I do want you to see, and this is usually the thing that we start by pointing out about this particular passage, I want you to see that the contrast in what Jesus just said, the contrast that he lays out, isn't between those who hear Jesus' teachings and those who don't hear Jesus' teachings. Do you see that? The contrast isn't even between those who agree with Jesus' teachings and those who don't agree with Jesus' teachings. That's not the contrast he lays out either. The contrast is between those who practice Jesus' teachings and those who don't. That's the important difference, Jesus says, is between those who put into practice his teachings and those who don't. And I bring that up simply because I know us as a church I know that probably not many of us have disagreed with the things Jesus has taught the past few months in the Sermon on the Mount. I doubt that very many of us, when we heard Jesus talk about how we should deal with resentment in our heart instead of letting it fester in our hearts, I don't think that very many of us who are followers of Jesus are like, I disagree. I think resentment is a great thing to hold on to. I don't know that any of us disagree with the things that Jesus teaches. I I don't know any of us disagree intellectually, but at the same time, I I bet there are a lot of us who have agreed with every single word out of Jesus's mouth and are still actively resisting putting some of them into practice. But Jesus says that's actually what matters. 
That's what counts. Not whether or not we agree with Jesus, but whether or not we hear and respond to what he says by putting his teachings into practice in our lives. Now, Jesus' expectation certainly isn't that we would put his teachings into practice perfectly. His point isn't that no part of our life can ever be inconsistent with his teachings. Otherwise, none of us would be the house that was built on the rock, right? So his expectation is not perfection. Every single one of us will struggle to put these things into practice on a regular basis. But listen, there is a difference between struggling to put Jesus' teachings into practice and deciding not to put them into practice. Does that make sense? Those are actually two very different things. Struggling with something indicates that there's an ideal you are shooting for and that you sometimes fall short of that ideal. That's what struggling means. But when some of us say we are struggling with things that Jesus says, my my fear is that what we actually mean is we've decided not to put them into practice. We've decided that they shouldn't have authority into our life. So I'll just give you a few examples, and and these are hard. I get that these are difficult to say, but I, I want you to hear me out on this. If you have moved in with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you aren't struggling to put Jesus' teachings on sex into practice. You've decided not to put his teachings into practice. If you exclusively watch and read news outlets that only ever stoke animosity towards the other side of the political aisle, whichever network that is, It's not just that you're struggling to put Jesus' teachings on enemy love into practice. It's that you've decided not to put them into practice. All of us struggle to put Jesus' teachings into practice. That's part of the experience of being a follower of Jesus. But followers of Jesus never just decide not to put them into practice. That's not what it means to follow Jesus at all. And then Jesus says that what often reveals whether or not a person has put these things into practice, has put his teachings into practice, what reveals the reality is what happens when the rain comes. When everything in your life hits the fan, that often shows you what your foundation truly was all along. And what an interesting time to teach that idea right now in our society. Because for a lot of us, Things are currently hitting the fan. A worldwide pandemic, crazy, divisive political climate. Some of us have lost jobs. Some of us are constantly anxious about where the next meal is going to come from. Some of us have had our hours cut, our income cut in various ways. Some of us are struggling financially. And at least for all of us, at some level, bare minimum, we have had our normal rhythms of life significantly interrupted. But that also means what a fantastic time to accurately evaluate what foundation we've been building our life on all along. This might be one of the most honest moments we have in regards to that. So what has this difficult season exposed about your life when it comes to following Jesus? When the pandemic hit and things got difficult in your life, were the spiritual disciplines the first thing to go? Was, was church, was time with Jesus the first things to go? Was time with other followers of Jesus on a regular basis, being known by them and knowing them, were those the first things to go? 
And if they were, doesn't that reveal that the way of Jesus was not actually all that central to your life to begin with? If all it takes is for life to get a little more difficult for following Jesus to be the furthest thing from your mind, I think that shows us that following Jesus was not our foundation in the first place. It was more like an add-on to our life. But if when life gets tough, that stuff sticks, the way of Jesus sticks, living out his teachings stick, our affections for him stick, that reveals that that truly is the foundation of your life. And that's what Jesus is trying to get us to in this passage. So following a difficult path, bearing observable fruit, doing the will of God, and practicing the way or the teachings of Jesus. That is what it truly means to belong to Jesus. And I will say this as we begin to wrap up. If if those four things sound overwhelming to you, like if you're going, man, that's a lot. That's four things. Like I don't even know where to start with all of that. I'll let you in on a little secret. Those are actually just four ways of saying the exact same thing. That following Jesus is not just about believing who Jesus is. James says that the demons do that. Following Jesus is about believing in who he is and in light of that, giving him authority into our life. Letting him speak into every single facet of our lives together. We are called not to just know who Jesus is or know what he says or even agree with what he says but to live out what he says about life and reality in the universe. Another way to put this, and we've been hitting at this all along, another way to put all of this is that it really all comes down to the question of authority. It all comes down to authority. Take a look with me at our last two verses, verses 28 and 29. It says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, when he finished saying everything that he had been saying, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That was the difference with Jesus, was his authority. A relationship with God through Jesus, following Jesus, comes down to authority. Anybody can like Jesus. Jesus was in some ways a pretty likable guy. Anyone can think that Jesus said some clever or helpful or insightful things. But a follower of Jesus is someone who gives Jesus authority into their life. Someone who says to Jesus, whatever you say, Jesus, it goes. Someone who says, whatever you say I should do is what I should do. Whatever you want of my life is what I want of my life. That's the posture of someone who follows Jesus and has given him authority into their life. I'll put it one other way. This was helpful to some people in the 930. Uh, You can't friend zone Jesus. You you can't friend zone Jesus. Hopefully all of you know what I mean by friend zone. If not, feel free to look it up. Be careful with that, but look it up online. But just so we're clear, to friend zone Jesus and to say I want a relationship with Jesus but only on my own terms, to friend zone Jesus is in actuality to reject him. Because Jesus is not auditioning to be an advisor to your life. He is rightfully claiming authority over your life. The question is, will you live in line with that or not? Now, as I say that about authority, 
I'm also aware that there may not be a word or an idea that we are more averse to, at least my generation and younger, than the word authority. And we do not like that idea at all, right? But here's what you need to understand about the authority of Jesus. It is an altogether different type of authority. His authority is not derived from a man-made title or position that he holds. His authority is not derived from an org chart or from his gender or from his race. His authority comes from the fact that he is God in the flesh and that everything he teaches us to live in light of, he himself lives in light of. I love Eugene Peterson's translation of verse 29 that we just read. He says that the people thought about Jesus when he was done speaking. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying. That's what the authority of Jesus is all about. So it's not just that Jesus should get authority over our lives. It's that he's worthy of the authority over our lives. When you encounter the Jesus of the Bible, the, the Jesus who poured his life out for sinners, the Jesus who spent his time with the poor and the weak and the underprivileged, the, the Jesus who went to the cross to die for his enemies, what you see is that he is worthy of giving our lives to. He is worthy of the authority that he claims over our lives. And when you see him that way, you begin to understand that he is worth the difficult path. He's worth the time that it takes for his presence to bear fruit in your life. He, his will is worth following and his teaching is worth building your life upon. So here's what I know. No, no doubt there are many of you in this room that you know all of this. You have found Jesus to be worthy of everything, worthy of your entire life, and you have given him authority into your life. And I praise God for that. There's so many people in our church family that that is true of. I praise God for that reality. There might be others of you who could be realizing for the first time through Jesus' teachings here that you may have misunderstood what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And I praise God, actually, for that clarity. I think he wants to bring clarity in that regard. And maybe you're realizing for the first time, oh, wow, I, I made this decision a long time ago, but I don't think I actually understood what I, what the decision that I was making. And that's an incredible thing to get that clarity. So if that's you and you're realizing that, you're wrestling with that, I would say, man, grab your life group leader, text your life group leader. If they're not here in the service, uh, come talk to us at some point during the gathering, after the gathering. We would love, any of those people would love to walk you through what it looks like to begin a legitimate relationship with Jesus where he has the authority in your life. We would love few things more than to walk you through the details of all of that. But I praise God for him bringing that clarity, even if it's uncomfortable type of clarity. And, and maybe for yet others of us who are here, uh, maybe we're still a bit confused. Maybe you need to spend some time this week with people that know Jesus and know you and, and just ask for their honest feedback. You need to say to them like, hey, be honest with me. You know me. You've observed my life. Do you see the fruit of following Jesus in my life? That will be a very uncomfortable conversation, has the potential to be a very uncomfortable conversation, but I've seen it be such a helpful, fruitful conversation in the long run. So, so maybe you need to have that conversation this week. 
But this morning, like Jesus does in the passage, I, I don't have an emotional story for you. I don't have a heartwarming invitation to conclude with. All I have for you is the question that Jesus laid before us in the passage. Which way are you going to choose? The easy way or the difficult one? The shifting foundation or the solid one? That is the question that determines everything else in your life. That is the question that can lead you to death or to life, and I pray that you choose life. You have Jesus' teachings. We have Jesus' teachings. What are we going to do with them? Let me pray for us. Father, no doubt this teaching is a difficult one. I don't think you intended it to be easy or else you would not have ended it the way that you did. God, there are times where you bring to us um, comforting words. And then there are other times that you bring to us challenging words. So I don't know where everybody's at. Um, I don't know what they're wrestling with in this moment. I don't know what they came in these doors wrestling with today. But God, whatever's going on, uh, no doubt this is the most decision. This is the most important decision that we will face today. The most important decision that we will face in our lives is which way are we going to choose. God, for those of us that um, maybe have been clinging to a, a false sense of security because there was a, a spiritual transaction we made with Jesus at one point in our life really hasn't looked any different since then, God, I pray that this morning we would find something better than that. God, I pray that we would discover who you really are and the authority that you rightfully claim over every part of the universe, including our lives. God, the, the good, loving authority that you have, the type of authority that, that dies for his enemies, that gives up his life for the people that hate him the most. God, that's authority that can be trusted. Even when life is difficult, even when life is nothing like we want it to look, that's an authority, that's a way that can be trusted. That's a teaching that we can build our lives on. And so God, in every single heart in this room, my, my prayer is this morning for clarity one way or another, I pray that not a single person would walk out of these doors today not knowing where they stand with Jesus and not being honest with themselves about it. I pray that we would gain clarity to who you are and who you are to us. But God, from there, even if we leave a little bit unsettled, God, I pray that you would use it in the long run to, to rescue us into your family, into your way of life that is better than anything else in this world. Better than anything society has on offer. 
God, what we ask is for the transformative work of the Spirit in each and every heart. God, that we would know who you are, and in light of that, we would know who we are. Would you give us clarity? Would you give us understanding? Would you give us insight into our own hearts, the hearts of others? God, would you help? Whatever needs to happen, whatever conversations need to be initiated, whatever it needs to be this morning, God, I pray that we would listen, that we would respond, that we wouldn't fight it, that we wouldn't throw up walls, that we would be hearers and doers of the word, that we would be people who hear what you say about life and practice what you say about life. God, would you begin that today for a lot of people? We ask this in your name, for your glory, for our good. Amen.